0: Everybody, you are listening to the New Discourses podcast. I am James Lindsay, and I am presenting to you now part four of, I hope, a four-part series. I might cram it all in and get it done in four parts, um, where we are reading through, I am reading through, Herbert Marcuse's 1965 essay, Repressive Tolerance. And we're now down near the end. Uh, We've done, three parts so far, breaking down this essay, giving it context. I've been telling people for, for weeks or months maybe now to read Repressive Tolerance. To This essay is the logic of what we're living in. This essay explains why we have the different behaviors around, say, the BLM riots versus the Capitol incident on, on the 6th. This essay is the explanation for everything. This is why you see the tech people censoring the left and are censoring the right and not the left um, this is the the fundamental asymmetry of our society and what's happened is that repressive tolerance has become the dominant logic of the left I would say that wokeness is in some sense the uh, tools of critical theory combined with the logic of repressive tolerance combined with a bad reading or a narrow reading of the epistemology the truth the relevance of truth and knowledge uh, from postmodernism, and then applied to identity politics. So that's sort of what woke is. And I really want to drive home that wokeness operates on repressive tolerance. And it's not just wokeness operates on repressive tolerance. If you want to ask the question, why is it that left-wing protests like the BLM riots, were somehow more important or exempt from COVID restrictions, whereas right wing protests were absolutely super spreader events every time. The reason is because repressive tolerance. So here we are in part four. I've read most of the essay out loud and broken it down and explained it. Parts one, two, and three laid out the essay. I, I should summarize them, but I want to do it briefly. In short, we can actually just start by saying that up to this point in the essay, and I'm actually going to reread the last two paragraphs, so I'm not going to editorialize as much as I do them from the end of part three, because they're so important. Uh, Up to this point, the essay has laid out an argument roughly that critical theorists like Herbert Marcuse, neo-Marxists like Herbert Marcuse are the ones who have the right to decide what we should be tolerant of and what we should be intolerant of, what types of violence are acceptable and what types of violence are not acceptable, what should be censored and what should not be censored. And he puts it quite plainly, the thesis statement, it all kind of builds to this point, and like I said, you should listen to the other parts, go back and hear them. You don't want to miss what's going on and not understand it, but we've just got to plow ahead. The thing's really long. The thesis statement of this essay actually appears here near the bottom, about three-quarters of the way in where we're starting today, where we ended with part three, and I'll read it directly it's a shocking sentence to actually just hear this, but this is what he writes. Liberating tolerance, then, would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. It really says that. As to the scope of this tolerance and intolerance, it would extend to the stage of action as well as of discussion and propaganda, of deed as well as of word. The traditional criterion of clear and present danger seems no longer adequate to a stage where the whole society is in the situation of the theater audience when somebody cries fire. It is a situation in which the total catastrophe could be triggered off any moment, not only by technical error, but also by by a rational miscalculation of risks or a rash speech by one of the leaders. He's mostly, I think, talking about nuclear weapons there, by the way, which is kind of legit. In past and different circumstances, the speeches of the fascist and Nazi leaders were the immediate prologue to the massacre. The distance between the propaganda and the action between the organization and its release on the people had become too short. But the spreading of the word could have been stopped before it was too late. If democratic tolerance had been withdrawn when the future leaders, meaning Hitler in particular, started their campaign, mankind would have been, would have had a chance of avoiding Auschwitz and a world war. So he's saying that we should have silenced Hitler before we got to that point, kind of ignores the relevance of what was going on in the the Weimar Republic anyway, but nevertheless. He goes on, and this is where we, this is the last paragraph that we explored in part three, the whole post-fascist period is one of clear and present danger. Consequently, true pacification requires a withdrawal of tolerance before the deed at the stage of communication in word, print, and picture. No speeches, no propaganda. Such extreme suspension of the right of free speech and free assembly is indeed justified only if the whole of society is in extreme danger. I maintain that our society is in such an emergency situation and that it has become the normal state of affairs. Different opinions and philosophies can no longer compete peacefully for adherence and persuasion on rational grounds. The marketplace of ideas is organized and delimited by those who determine the national and individual interest. In this society, for which the ideologists have proclaimed the end of ideology, the false consciousness has become the general consciousness, from the government down to its last objects. The small and powerless minorities which struggle against the false consciousness and its beneficiaries must be helped. Their continued existence is more important than the preservation of abused rights and liberties which grant constitutional powers to those who oppress these minorities. It should be evident by now that the exercise of civil rights by those who don't have them presupposes a withdrawal of civil rights from those who prevent their exercise. And that liberation of the damned of the earth presupposes suppression, not only of their old, but also of their new masters. So that's where we left off last time. Hell of a couple of paragraphs. It is explicitly said, explicitly said, explicitly said that the constitutional rights should be withdrawn from people who are on the wrong side of his argument their civil rights should also be withdrawn. So that's that's repressive tolerance. Those two paragraphs are the crux of repressive tolerance. And I claim that that's the logic of the left today. So now let's continue. Let's go forward. Let's finish this thing and see what else he has to say to justify this. He says, withdrawal of tolerance from regressive movements before they can become active, intolerance even toward thought, opinion, and word, and finally intolerance in the opposite direction toward the self-styled conservatives to the political right. These anti-democratic notions respond to the actual development of the democratic society, which has destroyed the basis for universal tolerance. The conditions under which a tolerance can again become a liberating and humanizing force have still to be created. When tolerance mainly serves the protection and preservation of a repressive society, when it serves to neutralize opposition and to render men immune against una- against other and better forms of life, then tolerance has been perverted. And when this perversion starts in the mind of the individual in his consciousness, his need, when heteronymous interests occupy him before he can experience his servitude, then the effort to counteract his dehumanization must begin at the place of entrance, there where the false consciousness takes form or rather is systematically formed. It must begin with stopping the words and images which feed this consciousness. Did you take all that in? This is brutal. This is is the justification for repressive tolerance, is that conservatives, which is everybody who's against his view— the neo-Marxist view, we have to remember. Conservatives have to not only be silenced, but they have to be prevented from hearing the things that form their conservative opinions. Tolerance has been perverted, he says, when It serves the protection and preservation of a repressive society. And remember, for the neo-Marxists, repressive society is liberal society. It's every society that's short of that utopia which lives on the other side of the communist rainbow. The end of the communist rainbow. I keep saying that wrong. It's funny. Okay, so he says, when it serves to neutralize opposition, that means him, and to render men immune against other and better forms of life, right? So Marcusa is all about this idea of liberation, that we're all gonna live in this kind of philosopher king utopia state where we our libidinal desires have been freed from having to be sublimated into work. That's what these, these Freudian Marxists and neo-Marxism are all about. They say that the capitalist society is filled with ideo- all these ideologies that lead people to to repress themselves their actual desires their freudian id they're going to repress that and they're going to sublimate it they're going to do they're going to they're going to discipline themselves and sublimate it into productive work they're going to go to work all day they're going to build products and they're going to be consumers and they're going to buy those products and that's the capitalist economy oh boy and that's what we need liberation from okay so intolerance keeps that thing going that's the perversion of tolerance from Marcusa, And he says, when this perversion starts in the mind of the individual, in his consciousness, his false consciousness from the paragraph before, his needs, when heteronymous interests occupy him before he can experience his servitude. What the hell does that mean? Heteronymous interests mean like all of the different, you know, all the, you watch these commercials, that's like, you know, you see a Nike commercial, you see a Coca-Cola commercial, that's That's Nike's interests. That's heteronomous means from many different sources. So that's Nike's interests. That's Coca-Cola's interests. And those, and that's GM's, that's Ferrari. That's all of these brands, all these cool things that you want. All of those interests, your boss's interests, enter into your mind, enter into your consciousness. They occupy you before you can even experience the fact of your servitude. So you don't even realize you're a slave to this system, to this capitalist consumerist system, because those heteronomous interests are brainwashing you constantly. That's the false consciousness of these uh, critical theorists, of the neo-Marxists. And when that happens, then the efforts to counteract his dehumanization, you might like your life, but believe me, you're dehumanized by your Nike commercial, that's what he's saying, must begin at the place of entrance, there where the false consciousness takes form, or rather is systematically formed, because you didn't make it yourself, it must begin with stopping the words and images which feed this consciousness. To be sure, he says, to be sure this is censorship, even pre-censorship. You're not going to be censored. You have to be it's not your speech that has to be censored. It is your it is that which comes in and shapes your thought that has to be censored. You have to be pre-censored. Your thought has to be pre-censored to Marcusa. This is the most totalitarian document in the universe, just about short of like Mein Kampf. I said that before, I think in part one. To be sure, this is censorship, even pre-censorship, but openly directed against the more or less hidden censorship that permeates the free media. See, this is the standard trick with these fucking critical theorists. Everybody's already censoring you, so we're going to censor that and it's going to uncensor you. That's literally what they're, that's their whole freaking argument. The society, critical race theory, the society is already racist. They say, what's the first assumption of critical race theory? It is the ordinary racism. Systemic racism is the ordinary state of affairs of society. So therefore everything's already racist. It's not an aberration from the ordinary state of affairs. It is the ordinary state of affairs. It's the normal science, as they say, the normal science they call racism. So the society is already racist. So they're going to intervene with racializing things and that's going to deracialize things. That's their whole fucking argument. And here it is. Here it is. And why is he making it here? The more or less, the more or less hidden censorship. You don't know it's there. Nike showing you a commercial is censoring your true thought. It's not freeing you up. And it's all throughout the free media. Now, of course, he would also be talking about things that we are experiencing now, where you have a very institutionalized narrative coming out of media. You may have noticed that CNN and the New York Times are kind of feeding you a line of shit. You might have noticed that. I don't know. I think I think I've, a lot of people have noticed it. Again, I've mentioned this a few times in the other parts. He's talking about being red-pilled and he's saying that everybody's a stupid blue-pilled idiot. And if you were red-pilled, you would know. But he's saying the way to red-pill people isn't to show them that they're being misled, It's not to give them the truth. It isn't even to censor them. It is to pre-censor that which is coming into their heads. It is to pre-censor so that they can't get wrong thought into their head in the first place. It's not even about controlling your speech. It's about controlling what gets into your head to control your thought. That's what Marcuse is advocating for. This is totalitarianism. This is 1984. And why? Because... Obviously, there's, there might be pre-censorship, as he calls it, but hell, you're already being censored anyway because the media is already conditioning you in terms of how you're going to think. So you're already being censored from your subversive will as it is. That's his argument. So he goes on, where the false consciousness has become prevalent in national and popular behavior, it translates itself almost immediately into practice. The safe distance between ideology and reality, repressive thought and repressive action between the word of destruction and the deed of destruction is dangerously shortened. So we live in a situation where because of mass media, for example, somebody can incite incredible violence very quickly. So now we have to just pre-censor. We can't have any wrong thought because it's too dangerous to have wrong thought. That's his argument. Thus, the breakthrough, the breakthrough, the false consciousness may provide the Archimedean point for a larger emancipation at an infinitesimally small spot to be sure, but it is on the enlargement of such small spots that the chance of change depends. Chance of change to the... Place at the end of the communist rainbow. The forces of emancipation cannot be identified with any social class which by virtue of its material condition is free from false consciousness. So it's not material class that frees you up from false consciousness. It's not being rich, it's not being poor. That doesn't free you up from false consciousness. Today, they are hopelessly dispersed through the society. So we're not talking proles versus bourgeoisie necessarily anymore. And the fighting minorities and isolated groups are often in opposition to their own leadership. In the society at large, the mental space for denial and reflection must first be recreated, repulsed by the concreteness of the administered society. That's what I would like to call the matrix, to be honest with you, um, that we we would red pill from. Repulsed by the concreteness of the administered society, the effort of emancipation becomes abstract. It is reduced to facilitating the recognition of what is going on, to freeing language from the tyranny of the Orwellian syntax and logic, I find that it's hilarious that he invokes Orwell here, to developing the concepts that comprehend reality. If we flash back, where did he invoke Orwell the first time in this essay, by the way? I don't remember which part it's in. Maybe it's the second part. He invokes Orwell by giving the example that preparing for war is preserving peace, which is actually true. He's got left-wing utopian thought in his mind and thinks that that's Orwellian, that having a prepared army to maintain peacetime is, is somehow a contradiction. Uh, so his, his view of what's Orwellian is a bit cracked. And if we fast forward to his inheritors and the woke, man, they've got some or- Orwellian syntax and logic down to the two plus two equals five is even happening. So anyway, he says, to freeing language from the tyranny of the Orwellian syntax and logic to developing the concepts that comprehend reality. So he means comprehending it correctly in critical consciousness. More than ever, the proposition holds true that the progress and freedom, or that progress and freedom demands progress in the consciousness of freedom. See, you have to have critical consciousness. Everybody has false consciousness, and if you have the consciousness of freedom, if we get everybody to be critical theorists, everybody gets critical consciousness, everybody gets woke, then we have progress in the consciousness of freedom, then progress in freedom can actually occur. Progress in freedom, which means the freedom that you have in the communist utopia at the end of the communist rainbow, is It demands progress in the consciousness of freedom. You have to make people realize that they are in an oppressed state, and then they will want to be in a liberated state. Who's going to do that? Critical theorists, self-appointed, of course. Where the mind has been made into a subject object of politics and policies, intellectual autonomy, the realm of pure thought, has become a matter of political education, or rather counter-education. So where did they get this crazy idea to take over the schools? Aha! Where the mind has been made into a subject object of politics and policies, intellectual autonomy, the realm of pure thought has become a matter of political education or rather counter-education. So you have to get into the schools. You have to educate people, whether it's working class, like Antonio Gramsci advocated for working class uh, intellectuals that were educated, um, Critical pedagogy movement, which was to come in about 10 years, is definitely going into the schools, following thoughts like this. This is, again, the logic of the left starting in the 1960s is this. What we need is a political education. We need consciousness raising. That's what he's arguing for. We need to make people into critical theorists. And then they can be discriminating like him and tell which kind of violence is good and bad, unlike everybody else who doesn't get to have that choice. So where does he go next? This means that previously neutral, value-free, formal aspects of learning and teaching now become, on their own grounds and in their own right, political. Teaching is a political act. There it is. Learning to know the facts, the whole truth, and to comprehend it is, a, is radical criticism throughout intellectual subversion. So our education has to become critical education. In a world in which the human faculties and needs are arrested or perverted, autonomous thinking leads into a perverted world. Contradiction and counterimage of the established world of repression. If you've read my essay on pseudo-realities, what he's saying is that the given narrative is a pseudo-reality, and if you gain a critical consciousness, then you become aware of that pseudo-reality, and then you will be believed to have pseudo-real thinking because you are perceiving reality correctly with your critical consciousness. That's kind of exactly the argument that I made, is that people inside and outside of pseudo-realities won't be able to tell which one is which. And I have said that the resolution to that is demanding evidence, actual empirical analysis. Um, because the world, for all the things the world is and how hard it is to learn anything about it, the one thing the world can't do is lie. Reality doesn't lie. Okay, and he says, uh, into, into a perverted world, contradiction and counter image of the established world of repression. And this contradiction is not simply stipulated. It is not simply the product of confused thinking or fantasy, but is the logical development of the given, the existing world. To the degree to which this development is actually impeded by the sheer weight of a repressive society and the necessity of making a living in it, there's your capitalism, it Repression invades the academic enterprise itself, even prior to all restrictions on academic freedom. The preempting of the mind vitiates impartiality and objectivity. Unless the student learns to think in the opposite direction, he will be inclined to place the facts into the predominant framework of values. Scholarship, that is the acquisition and communication of knowledge, prohibits the purification and isolation of facts from the context of the whole truth an essential part of the latter is recognition of the frightening extent to which history is made and recorded by and for the victors that is the extent to which history was the development of oppression and this oppression is in the facts themselves which it establishes thus they carry they themselves carry a negative value as a part and aspect of their facticity. To the great crusades against humanity, like that against the uh, Albigensians, with the same impartiality as the desperate struggles for humanity, means neutralizing their opposite historical function, reconciling the executioners with their victims, distorting the records. Such spurious neutrality serves to reproduce acceptance of the dominion of the victors in the consciousness of man. Here, too, in the education of those who are not yet maturely integrated in the mind of the young, the grounds for liberating tolerance is still to be created. This is just a railing call for the need for critical education. That's what this is. What he's saying is that the educational system, unless it is geared toward developing a critical consciousness, to making critical theorists, it will produce people who continue to think in the way that upholds the status quo, and that's a horrific thing, and he ties that to situations where that was, again, this I, this appears again and again, it was prominent in section two, or part two of our, our discussion on this essay, um, you have two things happening at once where he, he says this thing is happening in the West, and then he says look at this horrible situation where there was actually uh, a genocide or something and it's the same thing and it's obviously not the same thing so he's he's creating a false equivalence to make his argument but this is the whole point of this essay and so kind of a key sentence here is to treat crusades against humanity with the same impartiality as the desperate struggles for humanity means neutralizing their opposite historical function reconciling the executioners with their victims, distorting the record. Such spurious neutrality serves to reproduce acceptance of the dominion of the victors in the consciousness of man. And so we have to have a very critical education that looks, say, at the history of the United States. It makes you hate the United States. It makes it impossible to think of being proud of being an American because that will prevent you from reproducing the crimes of the past of of America. Just telling the truth, say warts and all as they say, wouldn't possibly be enough. You actually have to slant, you actually have to indoctrinate the other way to invoke a critical or to to induce a critical consciousness. And then you can have your pathway to the end of the communist rainbow. That's Marcuse's argument. Education offers still, he says, another example of spurious abstract tolerance in the guise of concreteness and truth. It is epitomized in the concept of self-actualization. From the permissiveness of all sorts of license to the child, to the constant, (laughs) uh uh-oh, self-esteem movement, to the constant psychological concern with the personal problems of the student, uh uh-oh, wokies, therapy people, a large-scale movement is underway against the evils of repression and the need for being oneself. Frequently brushed aside is is the question as to what has been repressed before one can be a self, oneself. The individual potential is a first is first a negative one, a portion of the potential of his society of aggression, guilt feeling, ignorance, resentment, cruelty which vitiate his life instincts. If the identity of the self is to be more than the immediate realization of this potential, undesirable for the individual as a human being, then it requires Repression and sublimation, conscious transformation. This process involves at each stage, to use the ridiculed terms, which here reveal their, their succinct concreteness, the negation of the negation, mediation of the immediate, and identity is no more and no less than this process. This is what I was talking about. Their belief is that a capitalist society, rather than being a liberated one, forces people to, to, to repress. Their, their libidinal drives Remember, the, the neo-Marxism is the fusion of Marx and Freud. So you're taking the Marxian theory, the Marxian process, you're putting it in the realm of culture, and then you're tying it, you're tying the idea of capitalism to Freudian analysis. And so Freud's very concerned with the id and the libido. And so this, these libidinal desires, Marcuse in 1955 wrote a book called Eros and Civilization, I've mentioned repeatedly where he's talking about this stuff. He's saying that to become a functioning member of the society, you have to repress those those libidinous drives. You have to repress that free-spiritedness, and you have to sublimate it, he says, into work. You have to sublimate it into participation, discipline, and, and becoming a functioning, productive member of society. And that process is how they induce the false consciousness to make you believe that that is good, that that is valuable, that that is moral, That that produces a life worth living with your consumerist stuff that you're buying because you earn money at your job that you don't actually like because that's what you do, and so what's the result? Lest I uh, overstate or understate that these guys are Marxists. Understate is what I mean. Lest I understate that these guys are ultimately Marxists. The result of this process, he writes, alienation is the constant and essential element of identity, the objective side of the subject, and not as it is made to appear today a disease, a psychological condition. Freud knew well, well knew, it actually says, Freud well knew the difference between progressive and regressive, liberating and destructive repression. The publicity of self-actualization promotes the removal of the one and the other. It promotes existence In that immediacy which, in a repressive society, is, to use another Hegelian term, I told you these guys are Hegelian, bad immediacy. And I'll butcher the German, but I'll try it. It's here, Schlechte unmittelbarkeit. God, I love German words. Schlechte. I got Schlechte. Unmittelbarkeit. I can't do their gigantic compound words. Bad immediacy. So, what is Hegel talking about with bad immediacy? He's he's talking about the the experience, right? And so, there, there's immediacy. Maybe it's good, and and then there's bad immediacy. It's like when you you get caught up in it, it's being on Twitter. <laughs> bad immediacy. It's being caught in that constant cycle of what's happening right now and having no perspective. Um. So, the publicity of self-actualization promotes the removal of the one and the other. It promotes the existence in that immediate. Existen, it promotes existence in that immediacy, which in a repressive society is bad immediacy, the Hegelian description. It isolates the individual from the one dimension where he could find himself, from his political existence. Of course, that's where you're going to find yourself. Thanks, Mark So You're going to find yourself in your political existence. What an asshole. It isolates the inv- individual from the one dimension where he could find himself, not self-actualization, not finding meaning in your life, not learning to enjoy who you are, not being happy with who you are. No, your political existence. So that's where you find yourself. Thanks, Marcusa, which is at the core of his entire existence. So you got to be a critical theorist if you want to find yourself. If you want to know who your, your what your, your sexual identity your gender identity really is, you have to have a critical queer consciousness. Do you not see it's all here? You have to have a political identity to find yourself because your your the personal is political and your political existence is the core of your entire existence. And that's where you find yourself, your true self. That's what Marcuse is telling us. Instead, he says, this is him again, instead, it encourages nonconformity and letting go in ways, w- this is self-actualization he's railing on getting to know yourself like kind of psychologically for real. Instead, it encourages non-conformity and letting go in ways which leave the real engines of repression in the society entirely intact. Being happy means you don't want to change society. That's the boiled down non-philosophical jibber-jabber version of that. Which even strengthens these engines by substituting the satisfactions of private and personal rebellion for a more than private and personal and therefore, more authentic opposition. The desubli- desublimization—oh my God, this guy—the desublimation involved in this sort of self-actualization is itself repressive, inasmuch as it weakens the necessity and the power of the intellect, the catalytic force of that unhappy consciousness which does not revel in the archetypal personal release of frustration hopeless resurgence of the id, which will sooner or later succumb to the omnipresent rationality of the administered world, that's your matrix, blue pill, but which recognizes the horror of the whole and the most private frustration and actualizes itself in this recognition. So this argument here really is if you become happy and you get to know yourself and become satisfied with yourself then what you're actually doing is you're de-sublimating and you are not doing so you're not you're not doing so in a way that turns you into a revolutionary so that's bad so rather than getting to know yourself and becoming content in life rather than reaching say a high level of of um, understanding if it's in your religious faith or a high level of understanding of yourself psychologically or through meditation or whatever it is any of these kinds of things no that would remove your political will Instead, you have to find yourself in your political identity. And that's Marcus's argument here. So getting to know yourself, getting to like yourself, being happy, bad. Being discontented, political, good. Why? Because you have to be able to bring about the revolution. He talked in the previous section, we talked in part three, we talked about how his goal is a total revolution of society, total revolution that throws off all of this crap where we have to sublimate our will to to, to be free and libidinous so that we can work, and create, and be productive and good members of society. So you need a political identity. Find yourself as a political identity, and then you won't be happy, but you at least will be on the right side of history. That's the argument here. Otherwise, you'll have bad immediacy. You'll care too much about living in the moment, enjoying your life, and and when you're doing that, you're not changing the world for what Marcusa thinks is the better. So Continuing, we're very near the bottom now. I have tried to show how the the changes in advanced democratic societies, which have undermined the basis of economic and political liberalism, have also altered the liberal function of tolerance. The tolerance, which was the great achievement of the liberal era, is still professed and with strong qualifications practiced while the economic and political process is subjected to an ubiquitous and effective administration in accordance with the predominant interests. So what we have now, he says, is we have the society that's extraordinarily liberally tolerant of people, of each other, of ideas, of, of everything. And yet the economic and political processes are captured and administrated. They are the matrix. And those are, are the matrix operating in accordance with the predominant interests. He says the result is an objective contradiction between the economic and political structure on the one side and the theory and practice of toleration on the other. Remember that for critical theory, the whole point is to try to find these these contradictions that you'll then point out. And then through the magical Hegelian process, you'll find a synthesis that raises you to a higher level in a better society. And then everybody's going to be on the far side of the, the communist rainbow. Okay. So uh, the altered social structure, he writes, tends to weaken the effectiveness of tolerance toward dissenting and oppositional movements and to strengthen conservative and reactionary forces. So society being good strengthens reactionaries and conservatives, and it undermines dissent and opposition, and he would say subversive movements throughout everywhere else. So his stuff, critical theorists. With the actual decline of dissenting forces in the society the opposition is insulated in small and frequently antagonistic groups who even where tolerated within the narrow limits set by the hierarchical structure of society are powerless while they keep within these limits but the tolerance shown to them is deceptive and promotes coordination and on the firm foundations of a coordinated society all but closed against qualitative change Tolerance itself serves to contain such change rather than to promote it. So what he's saying is that by promoting people and being tolerant, while you have the contradictory state that you have an administered politics and economic situation, I think we could probably add the media, he would, he did earlier, that what all of this tolerance does is it prevents people from being able to gather together and form a revolutionary block that will overthrow the repressive regime. It's again. It's a, it's a remarkable irony to read this now, given that his world is the is the repressive regime now that has come into into play. That he has created the world that he is criticizing. Um, it's it's a, such a staggeringly interesting place to be. So technically, the last paragraph, and then we have a postscript that was added in 1968. So the last paragraph, these same conditions render the critique of such tolerance abstract and academic, and the proposition that the balance between tolerance toward the right and toward the left would have to be radically redressed in order to restore the liberating function of tolerance becomes only an unrealistic speculation. Indeed, such a redressing seems to be tantamount to the establishment of a right of resistance to the point of subversion. There is not, there cannot be any such right for any group or individual against a constitutional government sustained by a majority of the population, but I believe that there is a natural right of resistance for oppressed and overpowered minorities to use extra legal means if the legal ones have proved to be inadequate. Law and order are always and everywhere the law and order which protect the established hierarchy." It is nonsensical to to invoke the absolute authority of this law and this order against those who suffer from it and struggle against it, not for personal advantages and revenge, (laughs) yeah right, but for their share of humanity. So when Trump said that we need law and order in response to the riots, the repressive tolerance riots over the last summer, you can see that this last paragraph was waiting for him. So people who understand the logic of this. Law and order are always and everywhere the law and order which protect the established hierarchy. That's what Antifa is all about. And it is nonsensical to invoke the absolute authority of this law and this order against those who suffer from it, at least in their own minds, and struggle against it. Um, (laughs) Now, Marcusa qualifies this. So this is where it gets really interesting. Not for personal advantages and revenge. (laughs) You hear that Black Lives Matter? You fucking hear that? But for their share of humanity. Isn't that what they claim though? That's what they claim. So this is how they get around the fact that what they're doing is something completely different. Something that even Marcuso wouldn't approve of. So you can see how 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 the how something has slipped from his his beautiful totalitarian document here into actual totalitarianism. Because his little qualifier here is subjective it is subjective. And if you can convince people, no, no, this is for my own humanity, just like he's argued all throughout the essay, then, you know, there's your loophole, no problem. Marcusa goes on, "There there is no other judge over them than the constituted authorities, the police, and their own conscience. If they use violence, they do not start a new chain of violence, but they try to break an established one. See, BLM, even though it's in violation of that, is arguing from this essay. It is operating from this essay. They claim that they are breaking a chain of violence. The constituted authorities and the police are the things that they hate, that they're after. And they claim they're breaking an established chain of violence, not starting a new one, which is total bollocks. But here we are. Since they will be punished... Oh, look at that. (laughs) Since they will be punished... They know the risk, and when they are willing to take it, no third person, and least of all, the educator and intellectual has the right to preach them abstention. So shut up, intellectuals. You have to take the side of BLM. Educators and intellectuals need to take the side of BLM. Academics, you need to take the side of BLM. You have no right. Because why? Because they're already going to be punished, right? Well, that's not what happened something has slipped. Something has slipped. Herbert Marcuse. So that is the actual ni- the end of the 1965 essay, Repressive Tolerance by Herbert Marcuse, which is a horrific totalitarian document. I think if you've listened to all four parts now so far, you will have heard and understood why that is, how it sets up a tyranny to be led by the critical theorists to a communist utopia that doesn't exist. That is the purpose of this structure, of this document. It appeared in a book in 1969, however, titled A Critique of Pure Tolerance as a chapter near the end. And having come out four years later in 1969, Herbert Marcuse was able to add a postscript in 1968, which we can turn to now. And that postscript in 1968 is important to put some historical context. I claim that the essay written in 1965 sparked the riots of 67 and 68, and that postscript is written after those riots. So what does Herbert Marcusa have to say after he sees what he's doing put into practice? Is, has he moderated his view? I think not. Under, he says, under the conditions prevailing in this country, tolerance does not and cannot fulfill the civilizing function attributed to it by the liberal protagonists of democracy, namely protection of dissent. Maybe he's talking about what's going on. I think the Vietnam War is relevant at this point, too. And there's some dissenters and nobody's happy about it uh, in the government. Anyway, the progressive historical force of tolerance lies in its extension to those modes and forms of dissent which are not committed to the status quo of society and not confined to the institutional framework of the established society. Consequently, the idea of tolerance implies the necessity for the dissenting groups or individuals to become illegitimate, I would say maybe deplorable, right, if and when the established legitimacy prevents and counteracts the development of dissent. Huh, yeah, deplorable. <laughs> Let's hold Herbert R. Marcuse to his own standard. And all of a sudden, the deplorables are on the right side of history. Yay! All right, carry on. That's enough of that. This would be the case not only in a totalitarian society, under a dictatorship, in one-party states, like we have on the horizon. That's me, not Marcusa. But also in a democracy, representative, parliamentary, or direct, where the majority does not result from the development of independent thought and opinion, but rather from the monopolistic or oligopolistic—did I say that right? Oligopolistic—that's a funny word. Administration of public opinion. Uh oh, wokies Uh oh, big tech. Uh oh, Democrats. Let's read that again. This would so the or deplorables are doing good here, right? cheer on the deplorables. I don't think that's what he meant though. This would be the case not only in a totalitarian society under a dictatorship in one party states, but also in a democracy, representative, parliamentary, or direct, where the majority does not result from the development of independent thought and opinion, but rather from the monopolistic and oligopolistic, I can't possibly be saying that right, administration of public opinion without terror and normally without censorship. If you're blue-pilled, where are you at here? In such cases, the majority is self-perpetuating while perpetuating the vested interests which made it a majority. Hear that, Wokies? That's you. In its very structure, this majority is closed, petrified. It repels a priori any change other than the changes within the system. But this means that the majority is no longer justified in claiming the democratic title of the best guardian of the common interest. Got that, Democrats? You hear that? Hear that, Twitter, Jack, you listening? And such a majority is all but the opposite of Rousseau's general will. It is composed not of individuals who in their political functions have made effective abstraction from their private interests, but on the contrary of individuals who have effectively identified their private interests with their political functions. And the representatives of this majority, in ascertaining and executing its will, ascertain and execute the will of the vested interests, which have formed the majority. The ideology of democracy hides its lack of substance. That's an interesting passage, isn't it? That's an interesting passage right now, isn't it? So by this qualification, if we use this qualification to determine left and right, and I know this is going to be paradoxical and awkward, but you keep hearing people say that the political spectrum, something has changed, something is twisted or shifted or moved. There's some realignment occurring. According to Herbert Marcuse's idiotic statement in the essay that right, bad, left, good, the definitions have right and left have switched. The thing we call the left, according to Marcuse's explanation, is the right. The thing that Marcuse, by his definition of what constitutes right, that's our left. Now, right and left, according to Marcusa's definitions versus what we see, what we actually nominally use in our society, have flipped. So, Marcusa, you get this hey, hey, left wingers, attention, any left wingers listening, this is super left winger guy. I don't agree with him in general, but this is super left winger guy. And super left winger guy is saying that you guys are the conservatives now. You guys are are the ones who need to be subverted and torn down. If you are left wing and you are participating in the dominant society here, you are no longer left wing. You have lost the plot. And this is why we're seeing a gigantic realignment right now. The left has become, according to this definition of left and right, the left has become the right. But in a different sense. This is why I don't know where Marcusa. I mean, this is like the the ends of the horseshoe touching in horseshoe theory. So I don't know where Marcusa would land on what's happening now. Would he be against it? Or, would the woke, or would he be for it? It's clear that he would be against it. But it's also trying to do stuff like you know promote universal health care and climate change stuff, which he would be for. It's claiming to be on the side of the racial minorities, but it's failing that. So would he you be for it or against it? It's using critical theory, which is his stuff. But in the 70s, he complained that it had become anti-intellectual. And if he knew what the postmodernist element did to it in the 90s, he'd probably shit a brick. I don't know where he would sit on this. But if you accept the logic, if you accept this as prevailing left-wing logic, lefties, you are the right now. And the deplorables, the Trumpers... Are the are the left? They're the ones seeking freedom from oppression, and you are the oppressors. The script is flipped, bitches. Let's carry on, though. In the United States, remember this is 1968. He's writing this part that, that this tendency goes hand in hand with a monopolistic or oligopol. I can't say the oligopoly. You yeah, no, oligopolistic, whatever oligopoly, concentration of capital in the formation of public opinion that is of the majority. Or the power, the elites really. The chance of influencing in any effective way this majority is at a price in dollars totally out of reach of the radical opposition. Here too, yeah, go start your own parlor, right? Go start your own. Ser- you got to go build your own server farm. You're gonna have to build your own freaking internet, build your own cell phones, build your own app stores, build your own everything. Totally out of reach. It's at a price in dollars totally out of reach of the radical opposition. Here, too, free competition and exchange of ideas have become a farce. The left has no equal voice, although now it's the right, has no equal voice, no equal access to the mass media and their public facilities. Not because a conspiracy excludes it, yes it does, but because in good old capitalist fashion it does not have the requiring required purchasing power. And the left, now the right, the deplorables, does not have the purchasing power because it is the right. It says left. The left does not have the purchasing power because it is the left. If you, (laughs) it's so awesome. These conditions impose upon the radical minorities a strategy which is in essence a refusal to allow the continuous functioning of allegedly indiscriminate but in fact discriminant tolerance. For example, a strategy of protesting against the alternate matching of a spokesman for the right or center with one for the left. Not equal, but more representation of the left would be equalization of the prevailing inequality. Again, let's flip right and left, and all of a sudden that makes an awful lot of sense. If we had more people in the right working at Twitter, maybe they wouldn't be firing right-wing people. Maybe if there are more people in the right working at Amazon, we would have some servers for parlor. Damn, Marcusa, what you talking about, bro? You're on my side now. Wow. Okay, within this solid framework of a preestablished of pre-established inequality and in power, tolerance is practiced indeed. Even outrageous opinions are expressed, outrageous incidents are televised, and the critics of established policies are interrupted by the same number of commercials as the conservative advocates or leftist ones. As these interludes are, sorry, are these interludes supposed to counteract the sheer weight, magnitude, and continuity of system publicity and indoctrin- indoctrination which operates playfully through the endless commercials as well as through the entertainment? Given this situation, I suggested in repressive tolerance, meaning the essay above, this is its postscript, the practice of discriminating tolerance in an inverse direction as a means of shifting the balance between right and left, by restraining the liberty of the right, thus counteracting the pervasive inequality of freedom unequal equal opportunity of access to the means of democratic persuasion and strengthening the oppressed against the, uh, this has to be a mistake. Uh, it says strengthening the oppressed against the oppressed, but it's got to be strengthening the oppressed against the oppressor. Okay. Again, flip right and left. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. Restraining the liberty of the left, thus counteracting the pervasive inequality of freedom, unequal opportunity of access to the means of democratic persuasion, and strengthening the oppressed, the deplorables against the cathedral. Hmm, how about that? Tolerance would be restricted with respect to movements of a demonstrably aggressive or destructive character, destructive of the prospects for peace, justice, and freedom for all. Such discrimination would also be applied to movements opposing the extension of social legislation to the poor, weak, and disabled. As against the virulent denunciations that such a policy would do away with the sacred liberalistic principle of equality, for, quote, the other side, I maintain that there are issues where either there is no other side in any more than a formalistic sense, or the other side is demonstrably regressive and impedes possible improvement of the human condition. Hear that, Wokies? To tolerate propaganda for inhumanity vitiates the goals not only of liberalism but of every progressive political philosophy. Did you get that, Wokies? Paying attention, Democrats? Got that, Jack. Twitter. If the choice were between genuine democracy and dictatorship, democracy would be certainly preferable. But democracy does not prevail. The radical critics of the existing political process are thus readily denounced as advocating an elitism, a dictatorship of intellectuals, as an alternative. Yeah, that was what you advocated, Herbert Marcuse. What we have, in fact, is government. Representative government by a non intellectual majority of po- minority, I should say, of politicians, generals, and businessmen, the record of this elite is not very promising, and po- political prerogatives for the intelligentsia may not necessarily be worse for the society as a whole. So here we have Mar- Marcus being right and wrong at the same time, right? We have this goofball elite non-intellectual minority of politicians, generals, and businessmen that are in charge of everything, but he thinks the intellectuals should be in charge, which is, of course, the terrible idea that got us in this place in the first place. Okay, it's a terrible idea, Marcuse. In any case, John Stuart Mill, not exactly an enemy of liberal and representative government, was not so allergic to the political leadership of the intelligentsia as the contemporary guardians of semi-democracy are. Mill believed that the, quote, individual mental superiority justifies quote reckoning one person's opinion as equivalent to more than one. Oh, here's some super anti-democratic elite intellectualism. So here's here we have a professor arguing that professors should have more votes. Here we go. Quoting from J.S. Mill, until they until they're shall have been devised and until opinion is willing to accept some mode of plural voting which may assign to education as such the degree of superior influence due to it and sufficient as a counterpoise to the numerical weight of the least educated class for so long the benefits it's hard to read 19th century stuff for so long the benefits of completely universal suffrage cannot be obtained without bringing with them as it appears to me more than equivalent evils in other words. J.S. Mill's arguing that if you let stupid people vote, they'll vote for stupid stuff, so smart people should get more votes. Terrible idea, by the way, J.S. Mill. Distinction in favor of education right in itself was also supposed to preserve the educated from the class legislation of the uneducated without enabling the former to practice a class legislation of their own. And so that was Mill. Mill. And Marcusa comments, today these words have understandably an anti-democratic elitist sound, understandably because of their dangerous radical implications. Yeah, like letting Herbert Marcusa and the Wokies have more votes because they're smarter than all of us and all the very smart people know it. For if education is more than, more and... This is so complicated. If, For if education is more and other than training, learning, preparing for the existing society, it means not only enabling man to know and understand the facts which make up a reality, but also to know and understand the factors that establish the facts so that he can change their inhuman reality. Oh, yeah. Whoops. We got to have the critical theorists again, right? You got to understand the historical context and the suffering and that, that which is preventing liberation. And those people are the ones who know what are talking about. Gotcha. And as such humanistic education would involve the hard sciences, hard as it, this is the the most insane thing in the whole thing, right? Here's this little jab that's below his intellect, to be honest with you. As such humanistic education would involve the hard sciences, hard as in the hardware bought by the Pentagon, alleging war, weapons, that's hard sciences, war, hard sciences, war. Shut up the social sciences is totally totalitarian, Marcusa. Okay, sorry, editorialized a lot. And such humanistic education would involve the hard sciences, hard as in the hardware bought by the Pentagon, would free free them from their destructive direction. In other words, such education would indeed badly serve the establishment, and to give political prerogatives to the men and women thus educated would be would indeed be anti-democratic in the terms of the establishment but these are not the only terms so he says that it would be anti-democratic in the prevailing terms of the warmongering pentagon to let the critical theorists be in charge of everything but there are other terms don't worry we don't have to use their terms so what does he this he concludes we finally get to conclude however the alternative to the established semi-democratic process is not a dictatorship or elite no matter how intellectual and intelligent, but the struggle for a real democracy. Oh, Back to the Marxist <laughs> the Marxist rainbow. Part of the struggle is the fight against an ideology of tolerance, which in reality favors and fortifies the, conser- the, the conservation of the status quo of inequality and discrimination. For this struggle, I proposed the practice of discriminating tolerance. To be sure, this practice already presupposes the radical goal which it seeks to achieve. Huh. How about that? Let's read that sentence again. To be sure, this practice, discriminating tolerance, already presupposes the radical goal which it seeks to achieve. I committed this petitio principi in order to combat the pernicious ideology that tolerance is already institutionalized in this society. Like I said, the critical theory assumption, whether whatever critical theory is, that there's already this horrible situation so that they can violate the rules in order to un Unhorribleize the same situation. The example I, I think is the most r- easily understood is that the critical race theorists say that everything is already racialized. So when they play the race card, as it were, they're actually leveling the playing field and thus opening the door to deracializing. So you get deracializing by racializing. And remember, these are the idiots that lecture us about Orwellian language. So he's doing it for good reasons, to combat the pernicious ideology that tolerance is already institutionalized in the society. The tolerance, which is the life element, the token of a free society, will never be the gift of the powers that be. Well, I think we're living that now. It can, under the prevailing conditions of tyranny by the majority, only be won in the sustained effort of radical minorities willing to break this tyranny and to work for the emergence of a free and sovereign majority minorities, intolerant, militantly intolerant, and disobedient to the rules of behavior, which tolerate destruction and suppression. The end. That is repressive tolerance in four parts. And what do we do with that? Because if Marcuse is right, and his definitions of right and left are largely the way that he seems to intend them, the deplorables, the MAGA, the whatever, the right, The conservatives right now are the left that he's describing that should be endlessly tolerated into violence, which I think, fortunately, most conservatives disagree and would want to be more principled than that and would not agree with being minorities, intolerant, militantly intolerant and disobedient to the rules of behavior. But what he's saying is if he's right, and luckily I don't think he's right, that it's the only way would be to be disobedient and militantly so to overthrow the powers that be. So, what's Marcusa advocating for us now? And should we take him seriously? My my suggestion is no. My suggestion is that he's been wrong on, on key points throughout. But that's beside the point. We won't dwell on that. While we can, we should speak to the truth. My belief is that truth is the liberating thing, revealing the asymmetry as clearly as possible, is is what you need to do. Repressive tolerance is a document that tries to justify grotesque asymmetry for a radical purpose to achieve a utopia that's not going to happen. And I think that he is wrong, and we should not copy those methods. I also think that if you learn to see that the logic we live in is the logic of repressive tolerance and you understand where it's coming from and what it's about, then it becomes more and more easy to point it out to people, show them what's going on, show them that the thing they perceive or intuit as being unfair is genuinely cooked books, and to get them to to speak up in ways that are still within still within the rules of behavior, the rules of engagement of properly liberal societies, and to set us back on the course that, for example, the founders laid down for us in 1776, if we're in the United States, or the spirit of that as we go around the world and other Western democracies. So here we have then, in this the end of part four, in four parts, Herbert Marcuse's 1965 essay, Repressive Tolerance, I think you can agree, if you've listened to all four parts now, that it's certainly a horrifically totalitarian document that is being used to try to usher in a utopian vision. It's explicitly mentioned that that's kind of what it is, but he tries to skirt around it and pretend it's not, and that it's a horrific thing. But it's also a weirdly ironic document now that it has taken on the power that it claimed to be trying to fight. It has become the dominant hegemonic power of our society, logic of our society, and it is the thing that that is the problem that it tries to describe, and it, it, it's got a kind of exquisite and delicious irony about it for that. So this is where we are. This is, this is repressive tolerance. I think it's the most important thing to understand right now, more important even than postmodernism, although postmodernism is still quite important to understand for what's going on, as far as what's happening in the world today, to understand what's going on with big tech, to understand what's going on with the Democratic Party, to understand what's going on with its its other, you know, global politics and supranational politics. This is the logic of the world of the left today. It has become totalitarian in this. And if you understand that, then you understand a lot of what's going on. And hopefully there are smart strategists out there who, when they understand what's going on, can craft smart responses and smart strategies and smart policies and smart legislation that can help us stand up to this before we lose the liberal society that this document tries to condemn that I think that we should resurrect. So thank you for listening to my four-part series on Herbert Marcuse's Repressive Tolerance.